Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio once again is Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and well, we're going to get straight, well, we've been told to do it, so we're going to do it. We're going to get straight on with Australia. Wow, things are happening very, very quickly and rapidly in not a good way uh, down under in Australia. Let's just take a look at uh, some of the latest news here and we're going to get in to show you some very disturbing video footage as well. So we're calling this an occupation down under, Mike, and as you can see the uh, MRAPs are out now. Uh, this photograph here, images from Melbourne, uh, Australia, but just to look at uh, how some of the other uh, businesses and retail companies and bi billionaires and so forth are looking at this crisis as well. Premier Investments boss calls for unvaccinated to be banned from shopping centers. This is one of the most powerful retail magnets uh, in the country. He's like sort of Philip Green times two uh, in Australia here. His name is Solomon Liu and says that he wouldn't feel safe in a mall food court unless shoppers uh, are checked for jabs and temperatures. Uh, so more than likely, this is going to get adopted uh, definitely in the Victoria state and uh, probably in New South uh, Wales uh, as well. But uh, so, you know, we've seen a lot of footage on social media, Mike. It's very disturbing uh, in terms of the ramping up of the police state in Australia. And everyone in the world is looking at this right now because a lot of countries are saying, is this what's coming to my home next? Uh, so as a lot of people might be aware, uh, Australia and New Zealand are very much a beta testing ground for just about every globalist policy uh, you can think of. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. We've discussed it uh, in the past. Now we're going to look at this particular piece of video footage here. Watch closely, watch closely and wait till the very end. This is uh, a member of the public who's filming uh, in Melbourne here as police are amassing in their hundreds. And uh, he's like, what's going on? And wait till the very end. Right. Uh, that is the correct one that's on screen at the moment. I, I believe so. Okay. Yes. Look, 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 cowboys and Indians. Cowboys and Indians. This is not Australia. This is not Australia. Look, look, where, where they're going? There's nobody there. What, what, what are they trying to do? Is this for the, is this for the Channel 7, 9 and 10? Oh, shit. Poor head. Look, 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 poor guy. Just for the, just for the media. Just, just for the media. Look, look, look. Just to show the toughness. Look, look, look. Look. What the fuck is this shit, mate? Guys, whoever's watching this live feed, you got to understand, we're in some big fucking trouble, mate. Big, big trouble. Big fucking trouble. Fuck that shit, mate. So getting quite strong language there. It, it very much so, but getting gang gang rushed uh, by a, a few dozen of these sort of uh, territorial uh, police or the equivalent to what what do you have the T 
TG something in in, in London. Yeah, whatever. tactical the, the tactical resource groups and the, and these types of organizations. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. T TRGs or whatever they're called. So um, there's a lot of people speculating whether these are actually privatized police. Uh, that not all of them are actually on the payroll. That some of them have been kind of brought in. Uh, through various private companies and then sort of deputized or given a uniform. What we're going to show you next looks like that type of scenario. There's a, a lot of unmarked police cars now coming out, whole sort of caravans of unmarked vehicles. Uh, they're dotted along the streets. You can see them in video footage. Watch this particular bit of footage. This is unmarked uh, SUV. And you'll see as a tradesman uh, in his tradesman vest uh, is saying something to somebody off camera. You'll see what happens next. I'll, I'll just play Brad. Just play me and well, uh, the image is a little bit distorted there, but but nonetheless, it's pretty clear what was going on. But those didn't look like police; they were very militarized in their in their garb. Yeah, it's hard to tell who's who because then the police uh, who, who were identified as police come after that. So there seems to be this sort of uh, merger of uh, police and military, perhaps, or, mm -hmm. or privatized military forces. But as you can see, Mike, they just jumped out of the SUV, an unmarked car, and really just tackled this person who was unarmed. Uh, probably wasn't uh, you know harming anybody, but this has become the kind of normal uh, scene uh, that you're seeing in places like Melbourne, mm. uh, Australia, and the Victoria State under Dan Andrews, dictator Dan, as he's now uh, being uh, called. And so the next clip, Mike, we're going to look at. This is at the Remembrance uh, Day Memorial. I believe this is from last week. These are the tradesmen uh, and people supporting them who came uh, in solidarity. Uh, to sort of demonstrate at this National War Memorial. Uh, and you'll see the police arriving, and uh, it's the first time that we've seen or people have seen them arrive armed. Now, these aren't lethal weapons or technically not lethal weapons. We'll come on to that a little bit later. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so beanbag rounds, uh, pepper balls, rubber bullets, or maybe a mixture of, the, of that, but all firing on the crowd uh, as the crowd have their back uh, to the police, which is kind of disturbing. Let's take a look. This is fucking Australia. Just absolute thuggery is is really the only way to uh, to describe it. You know, these aren't like armed demonstrations. And there were injuries. Yeah, there were serious injuries. We had some images. We just didn't have time to get them uh, on screen for the program. But um, well, they they can they can be lethal in some cases, as we saw with the Gilets Jaunes uh, yellow vest protest uh, in in France. Uh, people there were fatalities. People lost uh, hands for, with 
exploding canisters and so forth. Some of these non-lethal uh, munitions used by police are in fact uh, lethal or do create serious injury. How did this all get started? Let's not forget the, uh, the, the trades union, uh, construction union uh, in Melbourne. Uh, they were basically uh, doing a protest against the union uh, because uh, of the vaccination policy. Now, originally this was uh, characterized in the media as the, they weren't allowed access to the tea rooms. Uh, without being vaccinated. And the media sort of covered up the fact that they were basically uh, going to walk out or protest en masse against the union reps who were in collusion with the government on this. But just to look at this image here, so they uh, made the news, international news, by blocking uh, one of the, the freeways here, construction workers, and how, this is how the media are framing it, far-right activists. We'll are, be coming on to that a little bit more the, later as well. The media are claiming far-right activists have infiltrated the tradies, as they're called in Australia, the tradesmen, uh, and are pictured here as they moved the protest onto the Westgate Freeway in Melbourne, Australia. So immediately this knee-jerk reaction by the press to blame it on far-right activists, when in fact this is a broad-based uh, a demonstration by trades union members, not just of, of the construction industry, uh, but other industries as well who've joined in. And the reaction from the government of Dan Andrews, uh, the premier of Victoria State, was to shut down the construction industry for two weeks to send a message to the tradesmen that you don't have any right uh, rent rights at all, basically. Mm -hmm. Take your vaccines. In fact, we're going to shut your industry down for two weeks so you can sort of Think about it, and then uh, we need to get back to work, and we can do that by vaccinations. I mean, total, absolute medical tyranny and fascism by the government in Australia, no doubt about it. So where does this leave France? Now, similar things are happening, Mike, uh, in, in France. Let's take a look at, here's Emmanuel Macron here, and our question is, is the government gearing up for civil war in France? It's very serious in France. You have millions of people taking to the street collectively every week across the country in hundreds of different towns, municipalities, and cities here. Ironic that his uh, book, member in 2016, entitled Revolution, but the revolution he was talking about in his book, Mike, I think was more like a neoliberal banker's uh, revolution rather than the one that he might be grappling with right now. The government is doubling down on its vaccine passport policies in France. They are giving no quarter to the public at all. And uh, let's just look at some of the scenes uh, here uh, from France. Now, this is, don't forget, there's a sort of the general protests that are just ongoing. Uh, and this is, again, a very broad-based movement, much bigger than the yellow vests uh, in general. But it's not confined just to vaccine passports. As you can see right here, these are the teachers, teachers protesting. Teachers across the country are protesting the vaccine mandates which Macron is laying down. And not only that, medical staff, Mike, are walking out. These are dramatic scenes here. They're throwing their, uh, uh, their, their PPE, their smocks on the ground. These are medical professionals, nurses, uh, basically saying we're not going to work anymore because of this draconian vaccine mandate. This is happening in France right across the board. You reported on this as well, the fire brigades walking out dramatic scenes here of the French fire brigades placing their helmets on the ground in unison and making a big gesture to the government there with massive support, I'm, uh, I might add, by large sections of the public because of the vaccine 
mandate. The government is not budging hardly at all on this issue. So they're quite happy to see all of these sort of walkouts, strikes and protests amongst the trades. But what's happening in here is that the same thing that's happening in Australia and even in New Zealand, which we'll cover in a minute, they are losing the confidence of the public because now it's becoming a class war, Mike. Mm. It's not just uh, the anti-vaxxers versus the government. This is really the working class versus a sort of growing fascist movement among Western governments uh, that's very disturbing indeed. So where does that lead us here? Let's take a look at the French press uh, and a thanks to uh, La French Connection uh, on Twitter for translating some of this for us. This is Valérie uh, Pecret. She is the uh, president of the regions of France. So they have this position in France, the president of the regions. What did they pass at midnight uh, just a few days ago? An amendment which incorporates the weaponry provided for articles R511 of the Internal Security Code, which includes revolvers chambered for the special 38 caliber, 357 Magnum handguns, long guns, electric pulse guns, and the protective and defensive equipment eligible for subsidies. This is basically allowing regions to buy lethal weapons which normally is not allowed. This is being recommended for cities with more than 10,000 inhabitants. So there's definitely a move here in France. What are they preparing for? And this is why we asked the question at the beginning, is Emmanuel Macron gearing up for civil war? They're not giving into the nationwide protests. They're doubling down on the policies and the police in all of the regions are arming up, Mike. So, I mean, we're not being, uh, uh, conspiratorial or paranoid here. We're just reading the French press. We're looking at what's happening on the street and we're drawing a simple conclusion and asking this important question. It's not confined to France either. No, indeed. And while it's uh, absolutely overt now in Australia, it's overt in France. It's less overt in other countries, but it's still happening. Um, and so, look, this was a, well, actually, this is sort of a summary of a number of emails that we've had in over the last couple of weeks. Stop talking about defense. Defense is boring. You must talk about vaccines. Well, we're going to continue to talk about vaccines. And you better make what's happened on Australia your top story on Friday or else. <laughs> and that was very much uh, uh, the sentiment of some of the uh, input from people over the last few days. But we are going to continue talking about defense because in order to understand what's going on in Australia and understand what's going on in France and understand what is coming to the UK, we've got to understand what is happening with defense and with security and with policing and with law and these kinds of issues. This COVID is only a symptom of the disease. Everything that we've seen in the last 18 months is a progression. It's been going on for years and I'm going to take everybody through the, the progression of, over the last number of years to see how we got to this point. And then maybe we can make a judgment about where we're going. And then maybe people can make a decision about whether they actually want to get active in opposing it or not. Um, okay, so to begin with, we're just going to go back to a clip that some of you will have seen before from Mark Carlton Smith, who is the head of the British Army, talking about the nature of war. Okay, so just have a quick listen to this. Systematically exploiting instead that hybrid space that exists between those two increasingly redundant states of peace and war. Artificial and binary characterizations of a strategic context that no longer exists today, but which... Right, so just think about that. Think about what he is saying. Peace and war, binary concepts, 
These are outdated, outmoded concepts. In other words, we're on a spectrum. We are in a state of perpetual war. This is the position of the British Army today. And, and not just away, but at home as well. We're coming on to this. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the British Army uh, conducted a defense review, and we're not talking about international uh, matters here. We're talking about at home. So they conducted a defense review about what the British military, the, the all three services, were going to do. And the, the first thing that we will remind you of, and we mentioned this the other day, we're going to mention it again, is that their new position is one of offense, not of defense. So it is not the Ministry of Defense anymore. It would be better to call it the Ministry of War because we're going to be offensive in our approach. But what's the nature of the war? But this was the actual words they used. So to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. So we're not going to wait for somebody else to make uh, to, to carry out some kind of aggressive act. We're going to uh, preempt that and we're going to drive forward with, with our war offensively, right? So where does that take us? Well, think about where we've been over the last 18 months. The headlines like this from Brookings, putting COVID emergency response on a war footing. Here's the World Health Organization, wave COVID vaccine patents to put, war on, put the world on a war footing. Here's the Times just from a couple of weeks ago. Those previous two were from last year, but this is the Times from this year from January this year, the Times view on Britain's battle against COVID, war footing. This has been the narrative since the beginning. It's like being it's in the Second World War. Our response to COVID is putting the country on a war footing. We are at war against this virus. But in fact, is it against the virus? Well, no, because as Patrick just uh, mentioned, this is what the integrated operating concept says. The old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. In other words, the enemy is no longer only to be found abroad. It's also to be found at home. That's you and me. That's all of us. When fake news appears to originate not abroad, but at home, it gains credibility and reach, stoking confusion, disagreement, division, and doubt in our societies. Are they talking about the BBC's fake news, Mike? No, they the are Guardian's not. The Guardian's fake no, news? No, they are the not. The Times fake no, news? No, they are not. They are talking about the public, the general public, the information that the general public is sharing, the questions that the general public are asking. And what this is saying very clearly is that the general public is viewed by the, uh, the establishment, by the military, by the police, by the government as the enemy. And if the public is the enemy, then is it any surprise that they line up with their non-lethal weapons and kill people? Mm. Is that any surprise? Is it going to get better or worse in the future? So we've got to think about this. We've got to consider it. This is extremely important. Home is no longer a secure sanctuary, whence we may choose to launch interventions unhindered. Away is no longer a regional horizon, but a global one. This is a very key point. Home is not considered safe by the military anymore. And away, well, it's a global uh, uh, war, and it is a global war. We've mentioned it's this many everywhere. times. It's everywhere. It's everywhere and it's constant. It, uh, that, which is what uh, Mark Carlton Smith was saying. We are in a state of perpetual war. We need to go back a couple of years prior to the Integrated Defense Review and look at the National Security Capability Review. Look at what they're talking about here. They're talking about uh, harder to build consensus and tackle global threats. Consensus building. You can't have consensus building when you've got social media and people talking about alternative narratives, asking questions. Consensus building is absolutely key. It goes on to talk about the decline of trust in, in traditional sources of information. 
uh, in the era of so-called fake news. It goes on to talk about building a culture of common purpose across government departments, whole of government approach. Common purpose. A, a culture of common purpose, but they're not just talking about government, they're talking about emergency responders, local and central government, armed forces, businesses, communities, also some individual members of the public, all merging together to create a common consensus on what our future policy is going to be about, uh, could be anything, but let's just stick with vaccinations and, and whether you're going to be able to stay in a job if you're not vaccinated, whether you'll be able to get your food at the weekend if you're not vaccinated. It goes on, uh, let's reinforce the institutions, the BBC World Service, the councils, the British institutions and brands that contribute to our soft powers. Well, soft power is now being implemented internally as well as externally mm -hmm. abroad. Uh, we'll significantly expand national security communications team to make communications an integral part of our approach to national security. So the government message becomes a national security issue. And this is seen in the online safety bill because they're saying that anything, any government narrative which is democratically important will be protected by the online safety bill. And th so this is key as well. So communications, we could slot propaganda in that sentence, couldn't we? And it would work perfectly, right? 100%, 100%. So, so then let's remind ourselves what Boris said a while back. We will put more police on the streets and use the army to backfill as, if necessary, because this is another key part of it, the merging of military and civilian uh, capabilities. So we're putting the army back in the streets, Operation Temperer. Uh, then we've got another example of Operation Temperer, police and army side by side. It's going to Scotland. The, the army are being sent to Scotland to run testing centers. Uh, and then we've got uh, the Minister of Defense saying that our armed forces are once again stepping up, demonstrating their versatility as we support COVID-19 response across the country. This is normalizing the military on the streets. But they're also doing vaccines for schools a few months ago. The, the, the army was doing that. And running and going around distributing tests right. and all this kind of stuff. This is normalizing the military on the streets side by side with the police, military and civilian operating in concert and so on. And enforcing the consensus. And enforcing the consensus. And then we have a headline from today. We're going to come on to this in more detail a little later but the armed forces could be delivering fuel as BP starts rationing petrol and Tesco cuts four, uh, shuts four courts amid trucker shortage. So the army once again coming in on the streets as a normal thing. So while the military is now carrying out civilian roles, what are the civilian institutions doing? Well, they're being transformed. So the police are being militarized mm -hmm. through millions and millions of pounds going into militarizing the police. They're becoming much more aggressive. They're being much given much more serious weaponry. Uh, and it's in Greater Manchester, that photo, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I greater, think that one's Greater Manchester, yes. I mean, it's like amazing, the, uh, the, uh, the, the gear they're wearing, Mike. Yes. It's like an NFL uh, football team with body armor. Yeah, but it's proper body armor, yeah. though, yes. Straight out of Running Man. Uh, well, yeah, and, and it's a massive fund, the transformation fund. The fund will be police-led, uh, uh, but it's the transformation of the policing vision. But look, we need to reimagine the whole system, not incrementally reform. So this is a complete reimagining of the whole system. But where has this policy come from? Or where have we seen it expressed already? Look at the second bullet point, Mike. Talk about doublespeak. Listen to this recent falls in crime and steady public confidence risk masking the need to respond to challenges such as 
globalization, digitization, and new threats. Total Orwellian doublespeak. Total Orwellian doublespeak, okay. Where did this come from or where have we seen it on the international stage? Well, at the EU and European Defence uh, Agency, and this is Jens Stoltenberg on the left uh, from NATO, the, the uh, uh, head of NATO, and that's Mogherini, who was the uh, head of the effectively EU foreign office on the right. And they were talking about the need to merge civilian and military institutions. We've got another little bit of video here for you. Uh, and this is Ursula von der Leyen when she was uh, giving effectively a job interview to become president of the European Commission, talking about the merging of military and civilian institutions in Brussels. Now, I'm going to jump right forward now to the present day. And I'd like to talk about four different components which we introduced back then which I believe are the important structural elements for setting up a European Defence Union. First of all, just two, three weeks ago, we were able to, for the first time, we were able to give a, the red light for a European commando, uh, command capacity in Brussels. Um, that's for the first time that civil and military instruments would actually be commanded together with, and, and where these commands would actually come from one single central uh, command office. That's, a, that's a, 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 an essential step forward. It was unthinkable a short while. Right. Just think about that. A central command office run by Brussels. If you think that it's any different than any other country, it's not. Britain is going to either has this already, and we aren't necessarily aware of it, or it's certainly in development. Australia certainly has it. Uh, France, undoubtedly. So the, this is the model that's being rolled out globally. And this is why we are starting to see uh, this type of uh, attitude towards the public by the police in Australia and France initially, but it's it's not something that's going to be restricted to them. And we've had this in the United States for quite some time with the rollout of fusion centers. Then the Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11, Mike. And so, and again, you see the, the absolute militarization of law enforcement uh, in the United States. And uh, there is always talk of the military playing a, a role in terms of disaster uh, management or riot control and so forth, yes. calling out the National Guard. So it, we do have bulkheads of, of, of safety from absolute tyranny in America with regards to our 50 states. But nonetheless, you can't argue that there's an absolute program to militarize uh, law enforcement uh, in, in North America and Europe. And everywhere, yes. So look, look there's a bit of video. Look at the, what they're carrying. Look, these are the, the types of weapons that they were carrying. And uh, to show, this is the same uh, incident that you were showing earlier on, Patrick. But let's just take a still from that. Look at that. This is supposedly a non-lethal weapon. So where have we seen this type of weapon being encouraged for use in the past? Well, NATO again, uh, here we are. Non-lethal weapons provide options to troops who are faced with uncertainty. These are supposedly non-lethal, but they're not really non-lethal. Uh, does this mean that they're no longer soldiers? Somebody was asking at the time. Uh, they're policemen doing uh, law and order. Well, indeed, that's true because the, the roles are being merged. Uh, but the attitudes are somewhat different to, to traditional policing. So this is the actual weapon that the NATO guy is holding. It's not a non-lethal weapon. It's actually branded by the manufacturer as a less lethal weapon. And you can see it has uh, the capability now. And when uh, it has the capability of holding a magazine with, with a number of, of uh, projectiles. And these are the types of projectiles that they fire. 
that some of them are impact only, some of them are impact plus irritation. So they have some kind of pepper uh, spray or whatever, or it's equivalent to pepper spray in them, and you get hit with them. And not only do you suffer the, the pain of being hit by the thing, uh, but it sprays you, covers you in something which is extremely irritating uh, physically. Um, so just coming back for a second to the National Security Defense uh, Capability Review, uh, we're take, this is, because this comes back to your uh, point about the right-wing extremism that you made earlier, Patrick, and, and you said uh, knee-jerk reaction. I'm going to say that that's not quite correct. This is actually policy which has been considered for many, many years now, and it was expressed in this document, which is from 2018, and it's been, it's been building ever since. We're taking a com comprehensive approach to tackling the evil ideology of extremism, whether violent or nonviolent, Islamist or extreme right wing. Now, there is no extreme right wing uh, in this country of, of any major size, but it is something which is being uh, uh, encouraged. We're being encouraged to believe that it's something which is growing and it's coming out of the anti-lockdown movement in particular and the anti-vax movement. And so I thought this particular headline from the Mirror a couple of days ago was really pretty despicable. Uh, Anti-vaxxers want to kill your babies stage a coup and cause another lockdown. <laughs> and it's one of a, a, a barrage of constant articles in the press uh, encouraging people to believe that if you are anti-lockdown uh, uh, or anything along those types of, uh, of mindsets, that you are extremist. And of course, this is uh, we've seen this in the last couple of weeks from the BBC and Mariana Spring in particular, who's trying to persuade us that uh, anti-lockdown and anti-vax is a gateway equivalent of a gateway drug into something much more serious. Look at the first line in that article says, imagine if the Taliban was targeting the NHS for destruction. Total hysterical hyperbole. And, th and this, is, this is a very interesting po point, Patrick, because they are basically implying that, in fact, it's not even just people heading towards the right-wing extreme, it's also the left-wing extreme and Islamic extremism as well. It's, well, it's anyone who questions the consensus, basically. Uh, that's, that's the enemy, and the press is doing a great job in sort of building this uh, uh, faux or fake imaginary fifth column up. Indeed, so uh, this article is gonna be published tomorrow. Uh, this is from Ian Davis. It's still in draft, but it'll be finished tomorrow. Um, is the anti-vaccine false flag uh, imminent? And he is has been looking at how this narrative about uh, anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown people becoming uh, radicalized and uh, an extreme right wing, uh, how that narrative has been building over the last number of years. This is a fantastic article and it will be available tomorrow. So I absolutely recommend people read it. But what I've aimed to do in this little segment, Patrick, is to show that if, if you take individual events like what happened in Australia or what's going on in France in isolation, they don't necessarily make sense. People get angry. They don't understand what's going on. The police are suddenly becoming very aggressive against people. Why is this happening? We've got to understand the, the policies that have, that have uh, arisen to, to, just, to, to cause these things to happen in the first place. And only by doing that can we get a, an idea of the direction of travel here. And the direction of travel is the wrong direction. And I think I'm hoping that people will... will uh, understand that we've got to actually pr provide some resistance to this at this point. And just, just to boil this down to very, very simple terms, the government is enacting draconian policies never seen before in modern times, 
and it's globalized. It's not confined to one, one specific country. There's all of the leading Western developed countries are doing it in concert, okay? They're pushing hard. They're, they're basically shutting down civil liberties, rights, human rights, uh, freedoms, basic freedoms, and they're pushing draconian policies, which we've shown time and time again. And this is going to uh, create a reaction from the public. And that is a genuine grassroots populist reaction. And then the press and the government and the establishment are trying to characterize that genuine grassroots populist reaction as being extremist, mm. as being right wing, as being anti-vax, when in fact it is the government's own actions, its own abrogation of de basic democratic principles that are causing that reaction and shame on the mainstream media for basically going along with this absolutely uh, disgusting gag. There's not much more you can say at this point because we've been watching it for the last 18 months, but we know why they're going along with the gag, Mike, because the mainstream media are getting paid by the state with public money to go along with the consensus. And that, my friends, is the fact. Okay, and then that brings us on to New Zealand, Patrick. And uh, well, The Guardian here saying, once COVID world beaters, the mood in New Zealand is changing and Jacinda Adair knows it. Does she? Well, she's had to basically downgrade uh, to level three on the traffic light system because basically she's losing the public. Uh, and so their uh, strategy or her strategy, and by the way, she is trained and she is a protege of Tony Blair uh, himself, so very good pedigree there in terms of politics. But her, her thing has been go hard and go early, stay home, stay safe. So basically, one case appeared, one case appeared, and they went into national lockdown just last month. So go hard, it's better to go hard and early and make everyone stay home, lock it all down, just to basically keep everybody safe. This is backfiring now on even Jacinda Ardern, who has kind of a cult following amongst her sort of uh, loyal base uh, down in, in New Zealand. But now it's so people are getting tired of it, Mike, and it just doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. So they, they've been able to kind of keep this charade going. And a, a New Zealand's a great test bed country, small population, very easy to manage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's effectively got, uh, it's kind of running as a one party state at the moment as well, very similar to Scotland mm -hmm. uh, in that respect. So uh, and a lot of people were joking. We just saw this sort of appear on the internet here. We're calling that Build Back Bitter. This is uh, looking forward to 2084. There's Jacinta, just one more week to flatten the curve, she's saying uh, there. So a little tongue in cheek there, Mike. I don't know what to think about that one. But uh, back to uh, North America here, Justin Trudeau thought he'd cash in his chips, Mike on his great pandemic performance. He called a snap election, hoping to get a big uh, majority, and it sort of didn't happen uh, as he expected it to. Uh, the liberals won, but missed the majority. So I mean, minority coalition, once again, slightly less support, Mike, now than the previous election. So uh, he's losing favor as well by going hard, going early, mm -hmm. locking down, punishing the public, uh, implementing vaccine passports, shaming the anti-vaxxers, which he did along his brief uh, snap election campaign tour. And a lot of the public are basically, even some people that used to support Justin Trudeau are now having second thoughts. So this is a trend, Mike, that's in inescapable. Mm. And that is the uh, pro-freedom movement, the dissent movement is growing and it's only going to grow 
if governments continue to push these uh, draconian policies. And one of the uh, great activists in Canada, his name's Chris Skye, and uh, we're going to have him uh, on the Sunday Wire uh, this Sunday, September 26th. And uh, Chris Skye is going to be joining us uh, for a conversation about what's happening in Canada. He's doing some amazing stuff there. And so their dissent, their sort of protest movement, pro-freedom movement is growing in Canada by leaps and bounds uh, in Ontario, uh, but also in other uh, provinces within uh, Canada as well. Okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column is doing and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and the, there are options for you to join us there. You've been very welcome and that support would be very much appreciated. Uh, also do uh, have a look for us on the various platforms and share our material uh, as far as you can. Um, and uh, well, Patrick, uh, it's winter's coming. T-shirts perhaps aren't the big thing uh, over the winter. So we have uh, now got a range of hoodies. Uh, if anybody's interested, they're on the UK Column shop uh, and uh, well, they're available for pre-order now. So, uh, so get yours uh, while you can. Yes, and good for yoga class as well. Even you can sort of unisex hoodies, fantastic for the winter. Right, okay. Save on that heating bill. <laughs> Well, we might have to with the, with the rate that the prices are going up. But anyway, uh, and uh, a quick uh, uh, advertisement for the fact that the High Wire on episode 234, which I think went out last night, The Rise of the Resistance, uh, mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Mike Williams' article, uh, this one, Stabilizing the Code, and they had a discussion about that. Uh, thank you very much, Del Bigtree, for that. And uh, uh, apparently this has now uh, begun a sort of research initiative to, to look into the allegations that are made. They're not really allegations. They are, they are um, suggestions that, that the, uh, the evidence seems to indicate a certain uh, situation with respect to vaccines and cancer. Uh, and so there is now a, a global investigation begun on that. And uh, we will keep you everybody posted uh, as best we can. Uh, and thank you to Dell for uh, for pushing that. Dell Bigtree's on a tour right now, Mike, uh, in the United States. This freedom tour that he's doing is absolutely incredible. Um, he's just barnstorming from city to city. Uh, and this, okay, so our caption uh, contest here. Uh, this was what we left off with last uh, Friday at the end of the show. And we're pleased to announce, Mike, that uh, we do have a winner uh, for the caption contest. We asked UK Column viewers to give us a caption for this uh, Lovely picture here of Meghan and Harry, Time Magazine's most influential couple. Uh, and so let's just take a look at this. Yes, winner. We have a winner. This is Alan. He says, uh, go on, Meg, tell mummy we subscribe to the UK column. Mike, we couldn't resist that uh, from Alan. So Alan, we're going to be sending you uh, a prize. Uh, what is that prize, Mike? Uh, Alan, you need to get in touch with an address and we'll send you one of our hoodies. Ah, so one of the hoodies. Yes, so let us which one you want. Let us know which one you want. We'll Gray, navy blue, zipped or unzipped. There's yeah. a lot to choose from. Yes. So uh, thank you, Alan, for that. And uh, there's just another, there's a few honorable mentions. We're sorry if we can't uh, uh, show everybody's, but this is one that we just pulled off Twitter uh, that we just had to show. Uh, and here it is. Uh, this is from, uh, let's see. Yes, Grania McGuire here. And her caption is absolutely priceless. This looks like Harry is her hairdresser, and he's looking into the mirror explaining what he did to her lairs. It's so true, Mike. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> That's, that is a, definitely the honorable mention. Fantastic uh, uh, caption by uh, Grania McGuire there. And she did that on her own on Twitter, by yeah. the way. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, well, let's get on to gas prices. If uh, 
you need a hoodie to keep yourself warm in the winter. Uh, this is probably the reason why. Uh, so what is going on here, Patrick? Well, let's take a look at this. We've covered this last week. Plus, you've also talked about it previously this week. The energy price shock. Um, this is going to affect a lot of people and not in a good way uh, financially. Uh, let's just take a, look, a closer look at what's going on here. Uh, this is a, a, few, a few items that popped up that we're going to bring your attention to. Nine power firms insolvent, Mike. 30 more apparently in jeopardy. So there's a total of 50 companies uh, that basically are facing bankruptcy uh, as a result of the surge uh, in prices. So these are retail providers, I assume, who are uh, supplying directly to the public. Right? That, that's right, these are retail providers. And this, I don't know whether this is a, a uniquely British thing, whether, how many other countries do this, but the separation between wholesale gen power generation and retail provision and the encouragement in this country to, to, for small companies to come in and try to use financial manipulation, financial speculation to keep their retail prices low. But of course, that left them very, very much at risk if the wholesale prices shifted in any great deal. Uh, we saw that in California, actually, recently, uh, a firm that was attempting to sort of disrupt the, the retail power market going out of business for exactly the same type of reason. So Re Resulting in rolling brownouts, by the way. Yes. And, and blackouts. But in this case, it's going to leave, I believe, something around five or six million people uh, in serious trouble because they're, they're going to be then subject to cap in hand running off to some other power company wanting to get onto some kind of tariff and what kind of tariff do you think they're going to get? Well, uh, well, there's going to be only a few big big players left and they're going to be not offering discounts. Let's just put it that way. So right now, today, this has already affected around 2 million households, uh, Mike, and it's set to affect many more as well as you just, just said. Uh, so this is a price hike for millions of homes. And this is what Boris says at the UN is in response to all this. The climate threat is real and leaders need to come to Glasgow, COP26, to blow out the candles of a world fire. That's what the prime minister's reaction is to this power uh, energy price shock. Mike. It's unbelievable. So literally, the, the house is burning down, literally, in terms of the economy. And Boris is gallivanting around uh, the UN uh, in New York talking about blowing out the candles of a world fire, which is climate change. I mean, you just can't get uh, any more uh, Schwabian uh, than that. Let's just take a further look uh, at what's developing here. Just to take a look, this is how the press are reacting, Mike. This is the I newspaper. UK's energy crisis is set to drive up the cost of living. That's true. Uh, but the way they framed it and the way they're explaining it isn't very helpful, uh, as we'll show you in a second will protect you from a surge of rising fuel bills. So the government is claiming they're gonna provide these emergency loans to these power companies in order to sort of insulate from the price shock or sort of just to create a barrier in there to absorb uh, some of the price shock here. So again, that's government, this could very easily might turn into a bailout, but I think the bailout would come when the, the big companies have basically knocked out all the small players and yes. then they can get the money, right? Yes. That's usually how it goes. That's called what? Too big to fail, yes. right? Okay. And this is the one I love. Price cap must go, says energy companies. So in other words, they're, they're, they're wanting to sort of pass that cost on to uh, the consumer. So uh, mind you, not giving too much of a care about the fact that most of the people who, are, who ran around to change their power companies a few years ago, who followed Sergey, the little mer the, the, the Russian meerkat, that encourage them on TV ads every 10 seconds to, to switch their power bill to a cheaper or green company. 
those people are out on the doorstep right now in the cold, and they're going to have to run back to whoever's left in the market, and they're going to be giving, as you said before, really exorbitant prices that are going to reflect uh, the price spikes that we're seeing in the wholesale market right now. So it's not good for millions of people, and those are the people who can least afford it. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, uh, we've got the HGV driver shortage. Now, you've already had a quick preview of this headline in the sun this morning, soldiering arms on armed forces could deliver fuel as BP starts rationing petrol and Tesco shuts forecourts amid trucker shortage. So what is the inevitable result going to be, particularly when you've got headlines like this and headlines like this on the BBC News uh, website this morning, buy petrol as normal, says minister, while at the same time they've got that big image of all the pumps shut. Um, of course, that's going to cause panic buying. This is what happened last year in the supermarkets right at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. The panic buying that was going on at that stage was driven by the media. It's being driven by the media again. But the question is, do we have, or what is the reason for this HGV driver shortage? Do we even have one? What's the cause of it? Many people, the BBC and others, presenting the idea that it's Brexit that has caused this problem. Is that true? Well, here is uh, Global uh, Chain News. Driver shortage is pan-European, and they make it quite clear in this article that countries right across Europe, in, are, and they're really only talking about Europe at this point in time, are suffering similar driver shortages. So it's not really Brexit-related, is it, if it's happening in, on the European continent as well? So what could it be? Could it be perhaps coronavirus-related? Well, perhaps we get a clue from the United Union, and this is going back to April 2020. Government risks lorry driver shortage during coronavirus crisis unless medical rules are relaxed. That was April 2020 that Unite was warning about this, but it goes back even further than that. Uh, here is uh, Track Trans uh, from, well, this is March 2020, but they're actually talking about a report that came out in 2019. Um, saying, well, this article begins by saying, as of the date of writing, there are 590 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the UK. So that goes to show how early it was. Uh, we're and they went on to say that, that we're likely to enter a recession because of government policy, by the way. Uh, this will affect the road haulage industry substantially, which already suffers from an HGV driver shortage of 59,000 uh, drivers, according to an October 2019 FTA report. Government statistics show that there are approximately 300,000 HGV drivers in the UK, meaning if 20 drivers are off sick at once, or 20% of drivers are off sick at once, this will effectively temporarily double the driver shortage to 120,000 is what they go on to say. And the point is that that's, that that's based on a report which came out in October 2019. So the British government cannot claim that they didn't know that there was going to be an HGV driver shortage. They cannot claim that it's Brexit that caused it because it's pan-European. The government have intentionally, clearly, decided that they're not going to do anything about it, which has brought, to us, brought us to this point. Uh, and, well, I think what this uh, underpins, once again, is the idea that this is not about coronavirus as such. The, the, what, all the measures, all the policies around coronavirus are actually about something much bigger. We need to head over perhaps to Davos to understand what those policies are actually about. There, there, you can blame Brexit, uh, I think, uh, somewhat, Mike. Uh, there was kind of this engineered chaos uh, of all the sort of the boffins and their great brain trust got together and really screwed up uh, quite a number of things uh, in their sort of uh, Brexit process, okay? But combined with coronavirus, that's going to 
cause something on both sides of the English channel there. And as you said, uh, then you have the pandemic as well. So th these are all government, the, the bottom line, Mike, these are coming from government. Brexit wasn't an act of God. It was government uh, chicanery, government policy. Coronavirus, the pandemic, uh, uh, shutting down borders, uh, interruptions in supply chains. Here's George Eustace, the environmental secretary. He's saying um, that, uh, oh, there's been a lot of turbulence in the global supply chains uh, as the world comes out of the pandemic and comes out of lockdown and gets back to business as usual. So, hey, let's just blame it on the uh, microscopic micron particle there and not the government itself. The government or the architect of every single bit of disruption. That is an absolute fact. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we've got an inflation issue, which is going to have a massive impact on people's uh, cost of living and standards of living in the coming years. Uh, but don't worry, uh, because according to Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, we don't have to worry. Uh, it's only a short term thing. And this is echoed uh, on this side of the Atlantic by Andrew Bailey, um, who, of course, is the governor of the Bank of England. He has to write to the ch uh, chancellor of the Exchequer every time uh, inflation uh, goes above 2% or misses 2% by 1%. Uh, and uh, so he said uh, in his letter, as required by the remit for the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, when inflation moves away from the 2% target, I have to write to you. But don't worry, be happy. It's only a short-term thing. It's going to sort itself out very quickly. It's not going to keep going. Uh, and yet, in the meantime, the situation with all the major input costs uh, for example, with supply of energy, supply of raw materials, commodity prices continue just to rise. Uh, but don't worry, because we're all going to be happy. <laughs> uh, and Rishi Sunak then, uh, well, he wrote back and said, well, again, we don't have to worry because the UK's strong and credible macroeconomic policy framework and institutions continue to support the economic recovery from COVID-19. <laughs> so if that doesn't have people, uh, you know, wetting themselves in humour, I don't know. Uh, it's it's just it's just it's just incredible that that either of any of these people can can uh, be promoted in the press without challenge in the way that they are when they're speaking such nonsense. What does he mean by macroeconomic policy framework? Is he talking about printing money? Yes. Oh, I see. Amongst other things. I see. Yes. I see. Yes, and then let's uh, briefly move on to Evergrande, which uh, David mentioned on uh, on Wednesday. Sorry. Uh, and uh, well, Evergrande, of course, in big trouble. This is China's big property company. They're into a whole bunch of other stuff as well, like electric cars and so on. Um, and well, they've got two types of corporate bonds that they have issued over the years, corporate debt. There's internal uh, domestic Chinese corporate debt and also external uh, dollar denominated debt. Uh, and the dollar denominated debt is uh, quite a bit bigger. So uh, investors in Evergrande uh, have that are offshore, so dollar-denominated debt, are still don't know whether they're going to get paid any interest payments this uh, this month uh, uh, for the debt that is owed. Um, so, eighty-five million pound uh, million dollar payment in in interest was supposed to be paid by midnight uh, yesterday, uh, this morning, or yesterday, um, uh, or by noon today uh, in Hong Kong. It hasn't been paid, so uh, dollar-denominated investors don't know whether they're going to get that interest payment or whether it's going to be defaulted on. But Evergrande apparently has made a deal uh, on the $35.88 million of interest payments on the domestic Chinese debt. So if you're a Chinese investor, you're going to get uh, some interest payments, but possibly or likely not for the rest. Um, so uh, 
So that's where we are with, uh, with Evergrande. And that's kind of important because uh, the, the general consensus is that if that uh, organization continues to collapse, which it looks like it's going to do, then we're, we could see a 2018 style or 2008 style, sorry, uh, uh, contagion spreading throughout the financial markets. It could be something that knocks a whole lot over, but we'll keep an eye on it. So you're saying it could cascade, uh, certainly not just in Asia, but beyond. Uh, beyond, yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty uh, something to pay attention to. Yes. Uh, now let's come back to uh, defence then, uh, Patrick and AUKUS, which of course is the Australian-UK-US uh, defence agreement that we were talking about earlier in the week. Yeah. Well, this this is a great article by Brian Berletic, and it's it's not strictly about uh, defence per se, but more looking at the broader uh, geopolitics of this situation here. And they're really talking about this sort of confrontation uh, with China, what that means uh, to the sort of the global order, uh, as it were here. And I'm just going to point this part out here. Australia's largest trade partner in 2019 was China. Australian exports to China outmatched all Australian exports to North America and Europe combined. And guess what's happened? to Australian exports to China. Are they stalling by any chance? They're dropping very, very rapidly. And there's a number of reasons for that. Let's just take a look at here. Australia's participation in the US-led propaganda campaign pressuring China across a range of fabricated accusations, including the origins of COVID-19. Some people might argue with that who believe uh, that it came from a Wuhan lab leak. Nonetheless, Western allegations of an alleged Uyghur genocide uh, in China's western Xinjiang province, and supposed bullying in the South China Sea led to Chinese-Australian trade dropping off significantly, uh, with ABC Australia itself claiming by as much as 40%. Now, that would be devastating to an economy like Australia. And you add to that the amount of money that's being printed up and debt that's right. being accumulated by the Australian government in terms of furlough payments, paying for all these exorbitant bloated police state forces that they're running out to contain the public, uh, the public dissent on lockdowns, et cetera. You're looking at a country there that went from being almost a surplus kind of economy, very wealthy country, yeah. to somebody who's going to be very much exposed and in debt mm -hmm. in a very short space of time. What happens to countries like that? Well, they usually get uh, bailouts from international organizations or bigger players that then own them in the process. Right. And that's not going to be China in this case. Okay, the West is working very hard to sever that relationship. So let's just take a look at uh, some voices here. Uh, this is Wee Wee Dai, and he's on Twitter. He's a Chinese geopolitical analyst. And he tweeted out this image, Mike, iron ore futures, possible paths for Australia's biggest trade partner in China. Well, guess what's happening to that amazing export from Australia? China. It's not happening anymore. China is not keen to buy any iron ore. Our largest trading partner buying less Australian iron ore, and we are alienating that trading partner uh, with iron ore prices having uh, the true face of the Australian economy will be revealed and it won't be pretty. Now, minerals and things like this are one of the sort of great uh, powerhouses mm -hmm. of the Australian export economy. Now, you're talking about have half the price for iron ore, and that's being Australia, one of Australia's greatest exports, China being one of its greatest clients. So uh, we've talked about AUKUS, and we've talked about whether this is good for Australia or not. They're being brought along for the ride, mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like they have much say in the matter. Mm -hmm. It looks like the United States is definitely running this agenda. Britain is there in tow as well, So, and they've just basically absorbed Australia. It's always been a, 
a sort of uh, Asia Pacific backwater uh, base, if you will, for the US, uh, for the NSA listening stations at Pine Gap and so forth for, for decades. So everyone knows that Australia is kind of a 51st state of the, of the US. Um, but let's just take a look at you know, the spectator using, using words like uh, the New World Order. Take a look at this article by James Forsyth. There's actually a pretty interesting article. The New World Order, uh, can Britain, America, and Australia contain China? Now, this is a mainstream publication, Mike, here. And so this term, New World Order, is being used now by... Everybody's using it these days. So it's, In the last few weeks, it's suddenly made a resurgence. It's not an esoteric no. alternative media uh, Alex Jones term anymore. This is just becoming more mainstream. So that's very interesting. This is a interesting comments by James Forsyth. In the space of just a few years, Britain has gone from China's would-be best friend to part of a pact to counter it. Very true. We'll show you that in a second. Britain is no longer trying to stay neutral in the competition between the US and China. It is firmly sided with the United States. It looks as if the contours of the next 30 years of British foreign policy have just been fixed. That's an interesting statement, isn't it, Mike? So what he's saying here is that no matter who's in office, no matter what politicians in power, that the, uh, the, the physical attributes of the way the world is built now in terms of digital, and this goes back to your earlier analysis on defense from Britain uh, and, and technology, uh, 5G and all these sort of uh, uh, applications, that is the those will be the governing principle mm -hmm. of the great power games and also the military component uh, as well, and not so much what's going on politically in the country. So we're going into a potentially a very dark phase here, and it, which is very reminiscent of pre-World War I mm -hmm. uh, in terms of entangling alliances and so forth. But just back to uh, this New World Order article uh, by The Spectator, and just so there are a few issues of bipartisan agreement in American politics these days, there, but the need to counter China is one of them. So both parties agree uh, on the need to counter China in the U.S. So we can therefore expect this U.S. alliance building to become as central to U.S. foreign policy as countering the Soviet threat during the Cold War. So what do we have? We effectively have a new Cold War. Cold War. Uh, and that means back to bipolarism. And here's the, here's the real uh, takeaway. To allow China to seize Taiwan would mark the end of the U.S.-led world order. That's a very strong statement, Mike. And so what does that mean? That means that at all costs, uh, that the U.S. and its allies will come to the aid of Taiwan and prevent China from realizing its one China yeah. uh, policy. Okay. okay. So when he said, when Forsyth said just a few years ago, Britain was courting China to be a partner. Look at this. There's Cabbage Patch in 2013. David Cameron promises China growth partnership and went over there, signed the Asian infrastructure uh, a bank agreement, made Britain a, a member of that. You remember covering that? All yes, those, uh, yes. All those years ago in 2015. Well, that was just a few years ago. In six years, Mike, in six years, it's flipped from courting China to be a partner now to basically teaming up with other world powers to counter China. That's a major sea change. Well, I, I, I always assumed that was just typical British uh, foreign office duplicity there. But anyway, I, I, I understand your point. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if Britain will be a member or if they're not already kicked out of the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank or, or not. 
But uh, so you know, on the subject of, of the New World Order here, um, I wrote this uh, featured article in the latest edition of New Dawn magazine. They're based in Australia, coincidentally. And uh, the title is Welcome to Life Inside a New World Order. I didn't say the New World Order. Yeah. I said a New World Order because it's a new world order. So my question is, is this a return to a bipolar world order? Because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's really been a unipolar world order with the United States pretty much dominating globally and bringing its partners along with it, dictating foreign policy, dictating trade policy, sanctions, etc. That's been the reality since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So are, are we going to return to a bipolar uh, world order? And what does that mean in terms of politics, in terms of academia, in terms of worldview analysis from, from the media, from all these different quarters of politics? And so let's just take a look at uh, that article here. Welcome to life inside a new world order. This is New Dawn Magazine ep uh, edition 188. This is available at 21st Century Wire. So I asked this question here. So this could signal a return to great game grand strategy, pitting Western sea power against a Chinese-led uh, operational control of the Eurasian landmass, the chief objective being the disruption of resource acquisition by China and fracturing high volume belt and road travel and commerce routes. And we go on here uh, to say, if a bipolar world order is to return, uh, then uh, it will likely, it, it will be like a previous Cold War. There will be a contested or disputed zone somewhere in between that serves as a convenient, quote, away pitch for a protracted ideological military or proxy conflicts between these two uh, great countries. And you know this term, disputed zone, Mike, mm. uh, from 1984. And again, we're back to George Orwell's novel here. And a lot of people know 1984. It's a very interesting uh, novel by George Orwell, but known as this kind of domestic uh, authoritarian state. But the geopolitical gr bigger envelope of 1984 is fascinating and very much mirrors some of the themes and some of the trends that we're seeing right now. Yeah. So let's just take a look at what, what are we talking about when we're talking about a disputed zone here. This is a map here from 1984. In pink, you've got Oceania, and then Airstrip 1, you see London up there, and then Eurasia, East Asia, and then in the disputed zone. Let's take a look at that's that area there, the disputed zone. Well, that contains the Sahel region, part of the uh, Middle East there, and also uh, Southern India, and then you've also got Malaysia, Indonesia, and... Uh, the, the... It's just amazing how prescient that uh, George Orwell was, because these are exactly the areas that we seem to be having uh, in dispute right at this point. So, so what was the theme here, Mike, in this disputed zone in 1984? Long-term, uh, quote, low-intensity conflict over many, 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 many decades, mm -hmm. okay? Went to, to the point where it's so long, this, quote, war has been going on so long, nobody knows when it actually started. Nobody knows when it's going to finish. It's just constant. Because the concepts of war and peace are no longer binary. They are a spectrum. Yeah, and, and you, perpetual war. And you just brought it full circle from yes. the previous analysis. So, uh, well done. I think I think we did bring it full circle there. So, if you want to look at uh, that article and other articles there, go to Twenty First Century Wire. You can pick up a, an edition of New Dawn Magazine. My featured articles in there. I do encourage people to uh, to read it if they can.
Um, okay, so this morning then on uh, Good Morning Britain, uh, a representative from Insulate Britain, which is this uh, act, so-called activist group, which has been closing the M25 with their uh, protests over the last few days and weeks. Uh, well, he stormed off apparently. I'm not going to show the video. It's on, available on social media if you want to see it. Uh, he was given, well, a bit of sarcastic gr grilling by Richard Midley and, and Susanna Reid over the M25 protests. And the, the, the crux of this, uh, Patrick, was that Medley was uh, saying that uh, a lady had died as a result of the protest because the, the ambulance that she was in was not able to get to the hospital. That's a very uh, tragic thing. And uh, the, the person was justifiably, uh, there's a guy called uh, Liam Norton, was justifiably challenged on this. He didn't really have an answer for it. Uh, but in this uh, discussion between the two, I didn't feel that either of the positions that they were taking was was the right one, um, because uh, uh, Liam Norton was attempting to defend his position by uh, suggesting that you know he was right, and uh, he said you know for example, do you know how many MPs supported Churchill in 1937? Madeley said I don't care, and he went on to say well six MPs. Uh, and Churchill was right, wasn't he? But only six supported him. And the implication is here that despite the fact that they have no support and really the whole of the UK is against them for what they did on the M25, and then today they're busy blockading Dover Ferry Port, um, uh, that, that, well, it doesn't matter because they were right. It doesn't matter that there are only a few people because they're right. Are, are they climate change protesters? They are climate change protesters, right. yes. So he, they're comparing climate change to the rise of Hitler. Yes. I see. Yes, they are. Yes. And Medley was uh, was uh, making fun of that. Uh, but the key point here is, what is this really about? Uh, because Medley can be as sarcastic as he likes to people on the program, uh, but he's not getting the point here. The point here is that Insulate Britain, in my opinion, is what we might describe as controlled opposition. And we said that on Wednesday because they were apparently supported onto the M25 on a number of occasions by the police. Uh, and although uh, Pretty Patel was busy saying that uh, they would be arrested, nonetheless, there seemed to be police support for that. Um, so, uh, as we mentioned, they were this morning uh, blocking the port of Dover. Um, and uh, But I just wanted to highlight uh, a section out of this article, um, because this is the key point. Writing in a column for the Mail last week, this article says in City AM, Patel and Shaps condemned the tactics of the protesters and they quote them by saying, in the medium term, term, the police crime sentencing and courts bill will put public nuisance on a statutory footing, ensuring there are appropriate sentences for the harm caused. And that's what this is about. This is generating headlines, generating public angst uh, that this type of protest is not going to be allowed ever again because it's going to be put on a statutory footing to make sure that any public nuisance caused by protest becomes an illegal act. Um, so uh, this is about controlling protests in the future. Uh, we've been talking earlier in the program about the war on people and their right to speak uh, and their right to be heard uh, and the fact that counter narratives, government narratives continue to be shut down as a, an act of war by the, co the government and its institutions on the people. Now we have a further act of war on the people here effectively because the right to protest uh, being so heavily curtailed. So, so even though this, is, this group might be controlled opposition, Mike, um, they're being used in, in kind of cooperation in a way with the state uh, to basically accelerate uh, this uh, criminalization of protesting. So to get, the, to get the public uh, behind the criminalization of this type of protest and get the, any, any actual uh, uh, resistance to this bill 
uh, pushed aside. And look, here's the so, key. So, fu but fundamentally, fundamentally, even though I don't support uh, whatever, what was this group called? This uh, uh, Insulate Britain. Insulate Britain. I don't support what they're doing and believe who's behind it. I still have to, fundamentally, I have to defend their right to protest. To protest. It's not illegal. So uh, although it's a nuisance, although I don't like it, um, I have to tolerate it because otherwise, if I don't, we no longer live in a democratic uh, society. Right. And, and, and the key point here is, Patrick, who are the people that are protesting against or resisting this bill? It is the left wing. So here's the Morning Star rallying against the unjust and repressive crime and sentencing bill is the headline. Uh, women and allies are joining a movement that's coming together across Britain to oppose the government's onslaught of harmful legislation. This is a left-wing campaign at this point in time. This needs to be a broad-spectrum political campaign. Everybody needs to be involved in this from all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, and it, I'm extremely concerned that it's only the left-wing, and in fact, the far-left-wing, that, that, yeah. is, that is really coming out against this at this point. So if you want to continue with the right to protest, if you want to meet in London tomorrow, as many people will be, here's Stand Up X's uh, advertisement for tomorrow's uh, medical freedom march. We reject plan B, we vote for plan free is the subheadline on this. If you want to continue to take part in these types of demonstrations and these types of protests, this bill has to be resisted. And uh, I don't see too much resistance from, from uh, a broad spectrum of of the political uh, spectrum. But uh, just to remind you again, if you haven't read this book yet, The Road to Kill the Bill by Joe Boyd, um, do get a copy of it and read it. If you want to understand how organizations uh, like Insulate Britain exist, how they operate in cahoots with the state, uh, this is Joe's personal journey in activism and what he has seen along the way with the way that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, these types of organizations are run by the state in order to uh, uh, promote state narratives. Do get hold of that book and read it. It's not a long read, but it is absolutely worth the effort. Now, speaking of controlled uh, opposition, uh, well, and, and sort of fake uh, events, uh, let's just take a look at this latest release from BuzzFeed here. Uh, note the headline, Mike, prosecutors lost a fight to keep a set of January 6th Capitol surveillance videos under seals. So the government didn't want the public to see these, and so they basically fought in the courts to keep them secret. And these are surveillance videos from the Capitol building from the infamous insurrection or supposed insurrection, that's what the Democrats are calling it. Here's the screenshots of uh, some of the videos here. And so why, why would, they, would the government be wanting to keep these surveillance videos secret. They're claiming it's for national security reasons. They, they didn't want to provide a quote, a path or a roadmap to terrorists to be able to get it back in. So let's just take, we've got a little uh, clip here. This is one of the videos uh, themselves. Let's just take a look at, uh, at this. So this is one of the surveillance videos, Mike. So what are we looking at here? What do you see? Do you see terrorists armed? You see Al-Qaeda here? What, what do you see? Far right extremists? Well, it's it's a very it looks like a very aggressive insurgency, doesn't it? Not. I don't see I mean, any guns. Just, I saw just walking around and being selfies. quite peaceful and, and and quiet actually. Taking taking selfies. So this is from this is basically a fifteen minute uh, window that was filmed. This is when most of the action took place. The police are escorting people out after just fifteen minutes. This is in the Senate wing door. 
Um, so they're voluntarily going out. So if this was an insurrection, <laughs> it's, uh, it's the most bizarre and sort of uh, ineffectual insurrection in history. I mean, it's a joke. They're, they're, in the U.S. media, they're comparing January 6th to Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And they're saying it was the greatest attack against the federal government since the Civil War, when the South fought the North with millions of troops and hundreds of thousands of people died. I mean, that's the level of a hyperbole. But talking about controlled opposition, they uh, had a demonstration last week in Washington to, uh, to sort of uh, support the January 6th uh, uh, people who were being persecuted by the police and whatnot. And it turns out there were more FBI informants dressed as protesters at this particular event, FBI informants and press together than there were actual people, genuine bona fide protesters, and even caught on camera, I'm sorry we don't have the video footage, but it's on Twitter, of the police stopping one man who was armed and turned out to be, uh, it looks like a federal informant uh, amongst the people with the mask on uh, as well. So I mean, so that's, that's what's going on in the United States. So in terms of COINTELPRO controlled opposition, the United States is an absolute circus. It's a festival of controlled opposition and COINTELPRO, all the far right groups, uh, even the biggest one, the Proud Boys that the media elevated as this great far right pro-Trump group, the head, the head of the Proud Boys uh, turned out to be an FBI informant. So it's usually number one, two, or three within any of these organizations is also with the FBI. So that's just the story. And it's the same story every time. Yes. So we will end then with the United Nations General Assembly. The General Assembly. And uh, if you had the, 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 the fortitude to watch it, uh, I watched a few things. I did watch Joe Biden's speech, Mike. We did watch Joe Biden's speech here at the UN General Assembly 2021. And uh, so we, someone did a very skillful edit, Mike, a very skillful edit of Joe Biden making all of this virtue signaling at the UN, but then they edited it with what he actually has been saying uh, over the last month or two. So we'll leave you to this to enjoy. Let's just take a look. The future will belong to those who embrace human dignity, not trample it. The future will belong to those who unleash the potential of their people, not those who stifle it. The future will belong to those who give their people the ability to breathe free, not those who seek to suffocate their people with an iron hand. Many of us are frustrated with the nearly 80 million Americans who are still not vaccinated. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us. Authoritarianism, the authoritarianism of the world, may seek to proclaim the end of the age of democracy. This is not about freedom or personal choice. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated. I quote the opening words of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, quote, the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. The founding ethos of the United Nations places the rights of individuals at the center of our system. 
And that clarity and vision must not be ignored or misinterpreted. And may God protect our troops. Get vaccinated. Okay. Well, pretty much says it all says there. Says it all, yes. Joe, what are we going to do with Joe? Well, he might not be uh, in the White House very much longer. Probably give him till February. Mark that down in your diary. That's what we're saying. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us, Patrick. Now, we'll be back at the same time as usual, 1 p.m. on Monday. Have a great weekend, and we will see you then. Bye-bye.